You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's to find out more about our church or to take a next step. Visit stbarts.com.au. As we continue in our series in Acts, it'd be really great to have your Bibles open. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, it'd be great to have that open and ready at Acts chapter 20, where we pick up today. There's also some notes on the back of the news sheet. So if that's of help to you, there's, there's translation points there also. So in English, in Korean, in Dinka, and also now in Mandarin. So please make use of those if they're helpful to you. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that as we put our trust in you, that you enjoin us in your mission. Lord, please, would you be at work now, through your word, in the power of your spirit, transforming us for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the shape of a life that proclaims Jesus? Now, when you consider that question, perhaps some people immediately pop into your heart or your mind, people who have played a really pivotal role in your faith, who have encouraged you, who have inspired you in the Lord Jesus. Just this week, so just this week on Tuesday morning when I was at our parish council, when I heard the news that one of our most senior members here at St. Bart's, John Bergen, some 95 years old, when I heard that he had gone home to the Lord, it felt like I was being hit by the breaking of a wave. A wave of emotion as I was filled with such sincere thanks for the salvation that John had grasped in the Lord Jesus. But also a sudden wave of grief. Because it meant that even though the parting is temporary, Oh, how that, tempor- that parting is real. How I will miss him. Because whenever I saw John, whenever I had the privilege of sharing time with John, I saw the character of Jesus on display. I heard the words of Jesus on his lips. And I experienced the love of Jesus in his presence. You couldn't miss it. I want to live a life like that. A life that reflects Paul's own singular focus and aim to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus had given him. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, obviously, we're not all on mission in precisely the same way as Paul. Paul had a very particular shape of mission. Just in verses 1 through 24, so that which we heard Read, we observe Paul trotting his way to Jerusalem, making a litany of tongue twisting stops, preaching until people fall out of the window and then are raised to life, and even farewelling the Ephesian leaders with both encouragement and warning. In one sense, Paul had a very particular expression of mission. But in a more general sense, actually, every Christian is caught up in the very same mission as Paul, the mission of God, of living under the lordship of Jesus 
and making the good news of Jesus known. That's the mission we all share. That's the mission that our dear brother John shared in too. What's the shape of a life that proclaims that good news? Not just the content of proclamation, that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord, that it's through him that we receive forgiveness and life and life forever with him. Not just the method of proclamation, you know, one particular course or one sort of technique or preaching until someone falls out the window or something like that, but what makes for a way of life in mission that infiltrates and and permeates wherever we are on all of our front lines, that moves us from the well-worn grooves of serving our own purposes and shifts us to orientating our whole existence to serving God's purposes. As Paul makes his trek to Jerusalem and we observe his life, I think we get a peek at three key ingredients that make for a missional way of life that we get to share in as well. A missional way of life that is with others includes the whole of life and is compelled by the Spirit. So first, a missional way of life is with others. So let's pick up at verse 2 of chapter 20. Setting out for Macedonia, Paul travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just he's about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Phyrus, from Berea, Aristarchus from Secundus, from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Okay, so Paul, he's really on the move. He's traversing here, there, and everywhere. He's even backtracking at some stages. But don't miss the extraordinary cast of people with whom, part, with whom he partners. I think sometimes we can kind of think of Paul as some sort of evangelistic one-man band. Do you know what I mean? When Patrice and I lived in Durham in the northeast of England when I made my daily trek down the stairs from our flat, out the door, along the river, across the bridge, up the hill to my college, almost every day I encountered Nick. Nick, the one-man band. So do you know what I mean? So one guy is laid up with a, a guitar, drums, a kazoo, for whatever reason, and a microphone ready to musically take on the town. Now, I think sometimes when we think of Paul we can kind of think that this is what he was doing, that he was doing it on his own. Some sort of evangelistic cowboy, some solo powerhouse of mission. And the danger with that thinking, with that sort of conclusion, is not only that it's totally inaccurate view of how Paul engaged in mission, but if we try to imitate that sort of solo model of mission, not only will we be isolated... Not only will it overwhelm us, not only will we actually be ineffective, but I think we'll be tempted to dismiss mission altogether, saying, well, clearly I can't do that. That's definitely not for me. So I'll just park my role, my responsibility in mission over there, and I'll leave it to someone a bit more 
like Paul, whoever that person might be. If you feel overwhelmed, isolated, or ineffective in gospel witness in any of your front lines, it could be in part because you're trying too hard to do it on your own. That's not how Paul operated. In fact, in just two verses, did you hear, we hear a litany of names. You can't really miss them. So Pater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus and Trophimus. And they're also from a plethora of places. Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Asia. And of course, if we kept on reading through Acts and through Paul's letters, we'd discover an expanding list of names, an incredible picture forming that is... Paul set out to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus set him to. He partnered, he prayed, and he was supported by a long list of men and women who shared in the same gospel convictions and were enjoined with him in the mission of God. That's also evident by the sheer effort and quantity of time that Paul spent with others, training others, and mutually discipling one another. That wasn't always easy. There are plenty of examples of Paul encountering trouble. He warns even in this chapter that problems can arise from within the body. But it's absolutely inescapable that a missional way of life is with others. Just as Jesus sent out the disciples together, just as Jesus commissioned the disciples together, just as Jesus longed for the disciples to be unified in him and in his purposes. As you are sent out to your front lines during the week, who are you partnering with? Who supports you? Who encourages you? Who do you support? Who do you encourage? We often talk about front lines here at St Bart's, but I wonder... If you just pick one of those front lines, so just have that in your mind right now, if you pick a one of those front lines, how would you complete the sentence simply on my front line of work or school or community, wherever it might be, on that front line, I'm on mission with fill in the blank. Sunday gatherings are a wonderful opportunity for us to praise God and be mutually encouraged. Small groups are a, a key way to support one another and pray for one another in mission. But who specifically is partnering with you week in, week out on your front lines? If you're in a workplace with other Christians or there's other people known to you in similar stages of life, that could look like finding a regular rhythm of meeting up to pray together, specifically with one front line in mind. I know that there's a group of people who work up at the hospital, a range of different professions, who meet every single week to pray together as they seek to serve God in that place. I know of another group who have started to meet up to pray together regularly for their kids as they seek to serve God on the front line of family and school. Still, there's others I know of who, who now live in the same aged care community and they have this incredible sense, a very real sense of being there in that place for the Lord. 
And so they seek to express that and encourage one another in that. If you don't have any Christians on your front line or you can't meet up, that's not practical, you might like just to find someone who's in a similar profession or a similar stage of life, you know, has similar front lines, and just agree to text each other a couple of prayer points at the beginning of every single week, especially about things of how you are seeking to serve God in that place so that you can partner in prayer. It could be that easy. It could be a wonderfully helpful thing to try in the lead up to Easter. Give it a go. The point is that it takes humility to recognise that we're on mission together. And then it takes intention to somehow enable that partnership. It takes intention because not only is it easy to feel really isolated in mission, but making ourselves vulnerable and accountable in this way, it really rubs up against the grain of our cultural, individual type of tendencies that say, actually, I can do this on my own. But if Paul, but if Paul who helped free the Gentile believers from a yoke of legalism, who built a strong chain of churches, who chose and trained others to do the work with or without him, who wrote letters which would become the standard of faith and practice, if Paul didn't do it on his own, then why would we think that we can? A missional way of life is with others. Second, a missional way of life includes the whole of life. Verse 18, if you'd like to have a look with me. Verse 18. When they arrived, Paul said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Time and time again, we witness Paul not only longing to communicate the good news and build others up in that good news, but he does so with, with his whole life. At St. Bart's, we often talk about being lifelong and whole-of-life disciples. Lifelong meaning that following Jesus covers our entire lifespan. Whole-of-life meaning that following Jesus includes every aspect and every domain of our life. There's no time nor any part of our lives in which following Jesus isn't the main thing. I really love in this chapter that we're receiving this beautiful snapshot of the way that, that Paul's understanding of mission, so being a follower of Jesus, shapes every element of his life. So it didn't matter if he was in public or going house to house. It didn't seem to matter if it was with his words or with his heart, with Greek or with Jew, if he was preaching, encouraging, or staying up really late in discussions or if he was at work making a tent or sharing meals with friends or travelling with companions, Paul just saw it all and used it all in support of the mission of God. In the ordinary and the mundane, but also the extraordinary and the challenging. 
it's moving here, I think, but also elsewhere, that Paul often describes as a ministry of tears. Tears, not only in the difficulties that he faced or the, the persecution that he encountered, but in tears that are poured out in passionate concern. So this is not a follower of Jesus. You know, he just clocks in one moment and then clocks out the next. But he lays it all down in service of the Lord. And note that this isn't just Paul making wild claims about himself, but he actually welcomes people in a way to decide if they think that this is true. Have a look at verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I've heard people say that, or suggest that by Paul holding up his life as an example, that actually that's a really arrogant move, some sort of flex. But I think actually there could be nothing further from the truth. But when Paul holds up his life, it's actually an extraordinary act of humility. He, he's opening up his whole life to, to those whom he encounters. And, and that takes extraordinary vulnerability. I think it would be so much easier for Paul just to hive off a portion of his life, a little slice of his life in which he's serving God. But he actually puts it all on the table for the Lord. You know, so be it making a tent or sharing a meal or training another, preaching a sermon, discussing life, travelling by boat, sharing in struggles just all in service of the Lord. That's what we're invited to do. We're invited to put it all on the table for the Lord. I think uh, sometimes we can really struggle to see, well, how does God want to use every part of my life? Even the mundane, even the ordinary sort of stuff. But it really is quite amazing that if we're willing to hand it all over to God, then we also shouldn't underestimate the missional imagination of God, of how he's going to put it all to work. When Paul says, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me, this isn't some sort of like hyper-negative view of self, he's just got terrible self-esteem or something like that, but Paul is saying that he's willing to put it all the line because he sees, he recognises the best way that he can spend his life, all of his life, is in service to God's agenda and not his own. Paul's missional way included the whole of life. And finally, a missional way of life is compelled by the Spirit. So verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. I find it kind of amazing that as Paul follows the prompting of the Spirit to Jerusalem, he doesn't know what he's going to face, but he does know. The only thing he seems to know is that trouble is ahead. Now, I don't know. It's almost like saying, I don't know why, but I do know it'll be hard, but I'm still going to go. Now, if that was me, I'd be tempted to say, look, Lord, I'll do this if you tell me some of the details. I'm willing to even encounter trouble, but only if you fill me in on the purpose. But Paul doesn't have that sort of conditional following. 
Paul doesn't make decisions based on his need to know every detail. The criteria for his obedience is simply knowing if it's God's will. Paul goes because he is compelled by the Spirit. That phrase, compelled by the Spirit, it means something like, I'm going because I'm captive to the Spirit. So that doesn't mean that he's become some sort of human puppet and you know, he's lost all sort of sense of autonomy and he can't control his legs and the Spirit's just dragging him off there and he's got no control. It doesn't mean anything like that. Uh, it also doesn't mean that being led by God must always mean that we're in the dark, it's a mystery, or that it's always spontaneous. You know, Paul knew the bigger purpose, of course, of which he served. And remember just how long this trip has taken. Paul has made many intentional stops. Paul is showing us that being captive to the Spirit, so as yielding to the Spirit, is putting God in the driver's seat of our life and letting God be at the heart of decision-making and not ourselves. You know, Lord, I, I don't know why you've got me in this particular workplace or this particular front line at the moment. I'm trusting that in this season you have a purpose, that you'll open a gospel door. But I'm going to trust you even if I can't see that for myself right now. It can, of course, also mean that God brings us into new front lines as well. Or demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit when we really don't want to. I think often that involves a bit of tug of war, you know, tug of war between our will and what God wills. Not that we're evenly matched by any measure, but so often our tendency can be to, to pull away, to resist the Spirit moving in us, shaping us. Being captive by the Spirit involves longing for what God wants above what we want. We're yielding to God who not only sets the agenda, but who is the driving force for mission. Of course, that's the entire context of Acts. That's where we begin, right back in chapter 1 with Jesus' words, saying to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I find it incredible that the very same spirit who was alive and at work through Paul is alive and at work in every single believer. In recent weeks, there's been some really quite extraordinary reports coming out of the US for events surrounding things happening at the Asbury Chapel. On February 8, after one of the scheduled chapel services there, about 20 students stayed a bit afterwards and they were worshipping and they were praying for one another. This just kept rolling on and on. In fact, it grew and there were points in time over the next two weeks continuously in which that space with 1,500 seats was filled. Now, there has been no shortage of, of commentary and opinion about this. Sometimes we can look at that and you can yearn for that sort of visceral experience that that would be the norm. Some even said that, well, the whole campus should have been shut down. But in response to questions like that, the, the principal of the theological seminary right there, 
He wrote that the reason why the university and the seminary have not cancelled classes is not because we're in a business-as-usual mode. Far from it. There is talk of little else in every chapel, in every classroom, in every hallway conversation, and I suspect in every home and apartment in the community. The desire is to mainstream renewal into the very fabric of our lives so that we are transformed right where we live and work and study. We all love mountaintop experiences, but we also know that it must be lived out in the normal rhythms of life. We have to live into this desperation for God to do what we cannot do. You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses. You know, God moves in whatever way he chooses. God is working out his purposes. God has enjoined us in his mission. God has invited us to make mission a way of life. With others, with the whole of our life, and compelled by the Spirit. Let's pray. Precious God, we thank you so much that in your extraordinary generosity and in your wisdom that you do indeed enjoin us in your mission and the power of your Spirit. We thank you so much for that privilege, Lord. We pray that you would be at work in the power of your Spirit, in our hearts, in our minds, in our will, in our all, that we would so seek you out that we would desperately long for you to do what we cannot possibly do. Lord, please help us to increasingly live a missional way of life. We thank you that we do that with others, that involves the whole of our life, and that we are compelled by your Spirit. Lord, I particularly pray for us all this week on whatever front lines that we go, that you might help us to really partner with others to be supported and encouraged and support and encourage others as well. That we might build one another up in your strength, to proclaim your name, that many might come to put their trust in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.